Here's what we're going to do right now. We are going to wrap up uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of finishing this up. And uh, hopefully you guys have been enjoying the Sermon on the Mount. If you have not, uh, today's the last day. And we'll be starting the book of Revelation next week. So hopefully you have enjoyed it though. Uh, I've been really encouraged by it, really blessed by it. It's been amazing for me, I think, just looking at and hearing Jesus in a new light. So I've been really encouraged by it. Hope you have too. So what we're going to do today is we're going to basically look at the section on the Sermon on the Mount that sort of summarizes everything. And it's found in chapter 7. If you guys want to turn there, you can. That'd be great. If you don't have Bibles, we do have Bibles in the back of the church that you can pick up right when you walked in. And uh, that would be wonderful too. And so what we're going to do right now is I'm going to share with you guys real fast because uh, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be heading essentially the very last verse of Matthew chapter 7, which is sort of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew ends with this little statement where he basically says that Jesus teaches with an authority like none other. And we're going to basically finish or conclude on this subject matter of authority. I know it's a great subject matter that most of you love to talk about. Everyone here probably sure woke up this morning and thought, I really want to hear a great message on submission to authority. You're welcome. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at submission to authority, primarily the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So I'm going to pray right now, and then after praying, we'll read the passage and we'll get to work. Let's do it. Jesus, right now, we just want to commit this time in your hands, and we just confess that uh, anything that we read is only superficial unless your spirit discerns it for us and opens our eyes to it and helps us to see it. And God, we ask this morning that we would not just have superficial reading, that we would not just merely be readers of stuff and accumulators of knowledge. God, we pray actually against that, because Lord, that leads to arrogance, arrogance Uh, something that you hate, you despise prideful people. You despise it when people take biblical teachings, spiritual teachings, and use them as means of legalism, as means of spiritual arrogance, and as means of thinking that they're made right with you. So God, we pray right now that you would help break our grip and our love affair with just knowledge. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and have revelation here this morning, that we would see Jesus, that we would love Jesus, that we'd be transformed by Jesus. So we give you this morning, and we ask that you'd be glorified in everything that we do, and that ultimately you would lead us to greater joy that's found in you. So we commit this time in your hands, we ask all of these things together, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read, beginning about verse 24. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. If you can follow along, that'd be wonderful. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on a sand The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. We're going to basically begin this morning where Matthew ends. What I mean by that is Matthew Matthew finishes his whole chapter or summarizes this whole section of Jesus' monologue called the Sermon on the Mount by basically saying Jesus 
finished these sayings. Now, that might not seem like much to you at sort of the outset. It might not seem very dramatic or that remarkable. But as you read about three chapters later, you come across, especially in the Greek, the exact same statement. So turn forward to Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. I'll tell you what I mean. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, And when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, exact same type of wording in the Greek, and then go forward about another few chapters to Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Matthew 13, verse 53. Uh, Matthew tells us, again, Jesus finished these parables. Again, same sentence structure. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Matthew 19, verse 1. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, last one, Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. Again, Matthew tells us, And Jesus had finished these sayings to his disciples. So what Matthew wants us to see, basically the way Matthew writes his entire book, it's kind of an interesting type of way. What he does is he basically punctuates his entire epistle by essentially five sections or five main books, if you would. His whole point is basically, I think, centered around this idea of having sort of five major blocks of teaching. And what he wants us to do is gain something about the story of Jesus. He wants us to understand something about what he's trying to say about Jesus. Now, I'm told, I'm not a mountain climber, but I'm told that mountain climbers, especially when it gets really uh, windy or misty or there's a lot of fog, they have these little markers set up on the road. Because even when it gets extremely foggy as you're sort of ascending a mountain peak, you can lose your way pretty easily. And it would almost seem as if what Matthew's doing, uh, they have these little markers, they're called carns, I think is what they're called. And every uh, placement in the book, it's as if Matthew sort of sets a carn. He doesn't want us to lose our way. He wants us to stay on track. And each section along the way, as we're sort of making this ascent up to the top of the mountain, we finally make our way to the summit. And what he wants us to see at the very top of the summit is something very important about Jesus. But the way he does this is by basically establishing or placing these five sections all the way along throughout the book of Matthew, all the way leading up to some very important information that he wants us to understand and glean and learn about Jesus himself. One of the things that I think he wants us to see that's completely connected to this idea of authority, that Jesus is an authority. And he's going to tell us how Jesus is an authority through these five different sections. I'll give you a couple other examples why I think he does this. Um, In the most sacred writings of all the Jews, uh, they have what's called the Book of Moses. And they basically wrote or had what we would call our Old Testament. Um, They would call that the Tanakh, meaning it's three books. But it's three books that's composed of the law, the writings, and the prophets. The most significant and most important of all of Jewish literature is what's called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of Moses. Every Jew would tell you the most sacred of all writings is the Pentateuch. The reason why? Because when Moses speaks, when Moses gets the revelation from God, it says in the book of Exodus that Moses speaks to God face to face. How did all the other prophets speak to God or get information from God? Well, they got information from God because God would speak to them either through writing or a dream or a vision. But Moses is unique. Moses talks to God face to face. 
So the first five books of Moses are the most important to all of Jewish, to all the Jews, first century and as well as even today. I think personally what Moses or what Matthew's trying to do is he's basically trying to send a message to his Jewish readers that what's happening in Jesus' book, in the book of Matthew, Matthew's account of Jesus' life, broken into five major sections about Jesus, who is the authority. That Jesus is like a new Pentateuch. Jesus' teaching are like a new uh, writings of Moses. Although Jesus is not on par with Moses, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus has even more authority than Moses. And so therefore, I think that's what, Moses, that's what Matthew's trying to communicate or convey to the audience to whom he's writing. So he, he does this sort of subtly by breaking the book up into five major sections so that as we read through it, we get something to realize Jesus is not just some normal dude. He, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think that's where Moses is trying to go with this. I'll give you a couple of other examples of how he breaks this down. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is the first section we looked at, is basically marked by the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' teaching on what it looks like to be a follower of God. Or when somebody who embraces the teachings of Jesus or lives according to the teachings of God, this somebody, his life will look like this. I think that's important. Because to be honest with you, the reality is a lot of what we see in the world today in terms of Christianity, a lot of the type of Christianity that some of us convey to people is pretty bad. It's shoddy, all right? It just looks trashy. It doesn't look like God. But we live like that, and so what Jesus does is he tries to correct that. He realizes even in his day, the type of relationship that's being conveyed about God is not accurate. So in essence, what the Sermon on the Mount does is Jesus is basically coming along and saying everything you've learned about God through the religious leadership, for the most part, is false. It's inaccurate. It's incomplete. It doesn't clearly convey or communicate the depth and the width and the breadth and the greatness of God. It's shoddy, right? And the reality is, is he tries to correct that. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. As we kind of move on to the next section, chapter 10, Jesus basically gives instructions to his disciples about the journey of following Christ, what that will look like, what those instructions involve. The third section of the book is marked by parables. Matthew chronicles a lot of parables that Jesus conveys and communicates. Uh, Chapter 18, it's marked by even further teachings uh, about Jesus and this new community that he's forming. Um, Have you noticed that throughout the book of Matthew? Um, I mean, here, here's like a random thing, all right? Why did Jesus choose 12 apostles? Why not like four? Why not 17? Why 12? Jesus is sending a message. The message is, I'm creating a new Israel, a new Jerusalem. It's not that he's wiping out the old. It's as if he's trying to convey there's a new work that God wants to do. There's a new way in which God wants to convey. Not that it's never been conveyed in the past or veiled in the past, but really what's happened is that the way it's been conveyed in the past has been inaccurate. And so this is why Jesus speaks with authority. For example, when he teaches, when the religious leaders and scribes and Pharisees would preach, they would say stuff like this. 
it's, you know, open up the passage and they would say, well, you know, according to Rabbi so-and-so, this is what he taught and this is how this particular other teacher taught on this particular passage and text. And he says, so therefore we know that this is what the text means. Jesus basically comes on the scene and he says, listen, you've heard it said by this guy. He's like, bad stuff. He's like, I'll tell you what it actually says. All right, it's as if Jesus completely circumvents the whole system and the religious structure, and he says, they're all wrong. I'll tell you how it's properly to be translated, interpreted, and understood. That's what Jesus basically comes along and says. So the reason why he does this is because he wants to restore the proper relationship that God wants to have with his people. The means or the mediator by which God is going to restore this is Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one that's going to restore what's been broken, restore what's been lost, everything, everything. This is why Paul the Apostle, later, writing about this, trying to put all this in sort of doctrinal practice, basically will say, in him, in Jesus, are hidden all the, wis- all the riches of wisdom. Everything that we can know about God is seen through the Son. That's, that's what he's trying to convey. So we see, you know, in the third thing, chapter 13, third section, talks about parables, chapter 18, the fourth section is marked by teachings of this new community that Jesus is forming. And then chapters 23 through 25, basically the final chapter of Matthew's story or uh, gospel account, it's really marked by sort of these final warnings of imposing judgment. I mean, these are chapters in some way, shape, or form we're actually going to be getting into when we get into the book of Revelation. These are the chapters that people just, I mean, we're talking, especially people that love to spend a lot of time online, they go nuts with like chapter 24, all right? I mean, the whole chapters on like judgment and moons turning red, they freak out on this type of stuff, you know? And what, what really I think Jesus is trying to convey on this is that yes, there's a judgment that's coming. There is a judgment that's coming, and he's trying to warn his people from the impending judgment that's to come. Yes, part of the message that Jesus conveys does have to do with warning. Warnings aren't popular, but warnings save lives. Let me give you an example of somewhat of this warning. And the reason why I want you to hear this is because there is a little bit of a deficit that we have when we, re- when we read our Bibles. Let me give you an example. We can read our Bibles, and one of the problems that we have in reading is you can't get tonal expression in reading a passage, can you? I mean, maybe in some passages you can, but for the most part, when we read passages in the Bible, we don't get tonal expression. And that can be a problem sometimes, especially, especially, uh, I'll give you an example, you get sometimes preachers that are angry already. They're the type of people that are very arrogant and prideful. They love to look at their lives and realize how great they are and judge everybody else according to the standard of their own lives. And what they do is they take passages that talk about warnings. And what they do is they read anger into the warnings of Jesus. So what they assume is that when Jesus gives a warning, that he's really, really angry. He's really upset with everybody. And it's as if he's just saying, the hatchet's going to fall, and I will kill you if you don't do this. And, And there's sort of this implied, just intense anger that Jesus has by angry preachers. Now, in some ways, I think anger is justified. I think, obviously, when Jesus was in the temple courts, he was angry, all right? It, why do we know that? Because the text says so. So we, we know he was angry. So I think it's okay to put a frown 
on Jesus' face when you're doing that little flannel graph for your kids, right? And you're trying to tell the story of Jesus whipping people. I mean, if you have a whip in hand and you have a frown on your face and it's Jesus that happens to be that one doing that, run, run. And that's what happened, all right? So what takes place, though, is that we can oftentimes falsely read into Jesus' tonal expression extreme anger, However, what I want to make sure that we don't falsely do is read that in the text and therefore tint or shade or color what's really happening. Here's what I mean. I think Jesus is no doubt giving very stern warnings. We're going to read stern warnings this morning in the passage that we just read. We're going to study that. Matthew chapter 23 all the way through 25 and whatnot are stern warnings. But don't necessarily sort of transpose sternness into anger. Okay, you, you, you got to be careful about this. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Why don't you turn there real quick and we'll take a look at this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 20, 20, uh, 37. Uh, it's this little passage. In other sections it says, Jesus cried. He wept. He looks at the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. There's some intense uh, pathos that's there and feeling that's going on there. So are those tears of anger, or are they tears of sort of heartbrokenness? So he, listen to the text. Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you like children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you, wouldn't, yet you would not. I think these are tears of intense just sadness. Jesus is looking out over the city of Jerusalem and he realizes that there is an impending judgment. The reason for it is because they missed their Messiah. God graciously, lovingly, kindly, mercifully sends his son into the world to seek and save those who are lost. Yet what happened were the people basically just stiff-armed Jesus. They didn't accept his authority. They didn't acknowledge his authority. They continued living as if they were the authority. And therefore, they never embraced Jesus as their authority of their life. Their Lord, if you would. Their Savior. They didn't ever submit to him. And as a result of that, Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem saying, because of this, do you not know that there would be danger? Don't you know that I would have been the hen to gather you underneath my wings? It's this amazing picture of love. It's as if Jesus is saying, I I would protect you. I would cover you. I would shield you. But you wouldn't. You scattered. You ran. You fled. You stiff-armed me. That's the point. So what I want you to see is this is not Jesus being preached from the mouth of a very angry preacher who's waiting to just kill a bunch of people. This is actually the representation of a heartbroken father who looks out over all creation, all image bearers that have fallen and forsaken and stiff-armed God on a repeated basis just simply because of that's who they are and that's because of what they have inherited from Adam, a sinful nature. And he says, because you've continued in this way, there will be destruction and I would have saved you. I would have protected you. I would have shielded you. But you wouldn't come to me. Now this is Jesus who's actually pretty heartbroken. He's pretty bummed. Sad. He wants to take lives and redeem them. He wants to take your life and redeem it. Alright? 
the reality is at the end of the day, if you're here and your life is still sort of like this, running from God rather than to God, if you're, if you're you know, sort of body language to God is stiff-arming him, God's saying, I want to draw you closer and you're like this, right? You're like, uh, God, there's like a, a privacy bubble around me. Keep your distance. If that's the way that you approach God, I think the heart of Jesus would be to say, you're missing life. You're not, you're not finding life. You're not trusting in the right things. And the things that you are trusting in will let you down. The things you are trusting in will break underneath you. The path that you are on that you think actually will sustain you will end up dropping off into an abyss is what he starts off by saying. The confessions that you think you are saying really will ultimately lead you to a place where you truly just don't know the living Father. You might know about God, but you don't know intimately, personally, the Father. So what I want you to hear is this. Yes, Jesus is passionate. Yes, he's emotional. But that emotion is not like the raw anger of the angry preacher. It's, a, it's an emotion of, of he just wants to see his image bearers respond to him, to come to him, to confess their sin, to turn away from the offenses that they've constantly been making, and to trust God's solution, his son. This is it. This is what it's about. I don't know what type of like line of religion some people have come to believe. My assumption is a lot of what we've heard about God in churches is pretty much just trash. Unless it conveys the heart of a father that truly wants to seek and save image bearers that are lost. Both the sinner as well as the righteous, self-righteous, egotistical, good-doing older brother, just like in his parable of the prodigal son. God wants to save. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place, I think, here in this story. So we're going to begin, basically begin to take a look at what's taking place because Jesus is going to now talk about these warnings as he finishes that little section, sort of the five sections of Matthew's uh, little breakdown, that he sort of starts the Sermon on the Mount and then ends his fifth book in Matthew with sort of these warnings, these stern warnings, not angry but stern very serious. Let me give you one final example of this. Right, I was watching the news the other day. Most of you guys are probably aware of what's gone on in Samoa uh, and some of these other areas where there was an earthquake which triggered a tsunami. Many, many people died. I was thinking about this. I wondered what would have happened if somebody who, say, worked for some sort of uh, you know, agency that monitored uh, earthquakes, say so they lived on the island of Samoa, and they knew, they knew that an earthquake had happened. So they knew that because of that earthquake had happened, based upon past history of what happened elsewhere and other tsunamis in the world, they knew that what would take place, that probably that there would be a pretty good chance of a tsunami. So that person immediately goes down real quickly and sounds an alarm and bursts into people's house. Maybe they're sitting down having lunch or whatever, and they're like, listen, you got to get to high ground. you got to get to high ground. Your house right now will be destroyed. There's an earthquake. Remember you felt that? Yeah, my car's destroyed. All right, well, you better get to high ground. Um, because there's probably going to be a tsunami. And if that person who's receiving the warning, I don't think most people sitting down in the house who gets the warning from that dude who is in the know, they're not going to be like, oh, 
You're so mean. <laughs> I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm watching Oprah, you know? Like, I, how can you, like, interfere with, like, the time, all right? You know, I mean, the reality is, is most people wouldn't feel like that. They'd be like, they'd either take the knowledge and say, okay, you're legit, source, I'll run to high ground. I'll grab my kids, run to high ground. Or they would take this, the knowledge and say, you're an illegit source, I don't trust you, you know, back to TV, whatever. And the reality is, is most people aren't going to sort of be all hung up on, oh, his tone of voice was just not right, right? I'm just staying here, you know? And that's not how most people think. And supposing when the flood finally does come through, they're like, oh my gosh, thank you. Thank you for, for the knowledge, for telling me, for the warning. I had no idea. You did. I had no idea. And you saved me. That's what's going on here. Jesus knows. He's no, he knows. He's the authority. He knows what the life that builds on him looks like. And he knows what the life that does not build on him will ultimately end in. So his warning is very stern, very strong. He's not angry, but he's very serious about where he's going with this. And the way he does this is he basically gives a series of four motifs or metaphors, the first of which we looked at a few weeks ago. He talks about two paths, second of which he talks about two trees. He talks about the type of fruit that come from these trees, second, uh, third of which he talks about two confessions. And what we're going to look at today uh, in, sort of in closing are the two foundations, two houses that get built upon these two types of foundations. So here's what he goes on to say. So let's read that again. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain fell, floods came, the winds blew, beat upon the house, and it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell. And he throws in this little section at the end. And great was its fall. So I want to give you a little bit of a sort of comparison and a contrast between the two types of foundations that Jesus takes. And again, all of this is sort of couched in the larger teaching that Jesus is saying. Listen, his point is that this is what the life that follows me looks like. And, and again, we've been trying to say this from the very beginning. The life that Jesus calls us to live is actually a good life. It's a life that most of us in society would actually approve of. And Jesus talks about things like this. You know, if someone's angry, rather than going out and continuing this endless cycle of retribution, do good to your neighbor. Now, how many of us in our culture would be like, that's horrible? Right? I mean, most of us are like, that's, that's a good rule to live by. Or when Jesus even says, he says, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, most people affirm that. Most people listen to that like, that's good stuff. I'm like, that's golden. It's like a golden rule, right? right? I mean, we, we affirm these types of things. Because we agree with them. We know in society, these things actually work well. They function good. I'll give you one more. Jesus starts out the whole Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be the ones who see God. All right, quick, quick example. Who would you rather hang with? Super arrogant person who's always boasting of himself, or a humble person who's always looking out after you? Right? All right, easy question. All right, my point is pretty simple. These are the types of things that Jesus talks about. The arrogant people will not be with God. The humble will. 
The people who put others first are the people that are going to be with God. The people who are always looking out to destroy other people won't. The people that are merciful, that show mercy, right? You mess up, you do something lame, rather than something blo- somebody blogging about you, writing about you, calling up five of their friends and be like, did you hear? Did you hear? Right? Always gossiping. No mercy. We'd rather hang out with the one who's just like, hey, I want to just come to you and ask you. You know, you said this the other day, and I'm, I'm not really comfortable with it, but I want to ask you about this because did you actually mean this, this, and this? Because if you did, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. Instead, the people that are unmerciful, that are like, I can't believe you did that. How can this be happening? And you're like, uh, actually, that's not what I meant. The merciful. We love being around people that show mercy. That's what Jesus is saying. My point is this, is everything that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount is really everything that we would affirm and say is good for society. It's good for living. It's good for existence in humanity. The reason why we don't live according to it is because we're broken. So Jesus comes to fix our brokenness and restore in us a heart that's like God, that looks like the Sermon on the Mount. But the conclusion of all this is Jesus is very serious. He says, listen, should you live according to the things that I teach, should you trust me, should you follow me, you'll have life. Should you not follow me, there'll be grave destruction. There will be judgment. But you need to know real fast about judgment in the Bible. Most oftentimes there's sort of an immediate temporal type of a judgment, meaning things can be bad now. But there's always sort of this eternal judgment that's off in the future that will one day come. I'll give you an example of this. If you want to uh, mark this down, write down Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Here's what he says. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account So Jesus' point is that there will be a day of judgment in which you will give an account. Even though there's sort of an immediate judgment where, in other words, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. It's like, someone comes to you and says, listen, don't drink and drive. And you're like, why? I'll drink and drive if I want. You drink and drive. You get in a car accident. Not only do you total your car, but you destroy your back. All right? You're, You're destroyed. That, in a sense, is sort of a judgment. That's what I mean. It's like you, you knew what you should have done. I'm not saying it's like a judgment from God. I'm just saying it's like a judgment. It's, it's, it's the effects. The effect of what has happened to violating good news, good advice, good wisdom, good sound wisdom. You violated it and now you're paying for it. However, there will be a final judgment that Jesus says all people will stand before God. Now this isn't that difficult for us to understand. Most of us, or a lot of people here are students. Most of us here have actually been to school at some point. So you know what it's like. You get your book. You're accountable to read your book. There will come a day, right? There will come a day where the teacher will walk in the class. You will walk in together, and the teacher will be like, today is a day of testing, all right? You will be held accountable to all the info in your book, all right? That day's coming. For some of you, you're like, I had no idea. That's why you're in school for eight years, all right? All right? That advice could have helped you. All right? You're not a doctor. You've just been in school for eight years. But the reality is, is that we will be held accountable before God. We will one day stand before God and he will ask us, what have we done with our lives? How have we lived our lives that God has gifted us? What have we done with Jesus, his servant, that died for us? What will we do? How will we give an account? 
Jesus calls that day a day of judgment. That day where we will have to render an account for what we've been given. Okay? The reality is, is that day is yet future. So Jesus is basically saying, it's very important for us to understand that you follow the sayings of mine and you will be like one of two different types of houses. He points out in sort of the uh, comparison and the contrast. On one end, he talks about the foolish man who hears and disobeys. So he hears the words, he hears the teachings of Jesus, much like maybe some of you. You hear a Bible study, you hear the things that are being said, but in in your heart of hearts, you basically make a decision, you're like, that's his opinion. I won't listen to it. I won't abide by it. I won't obey it. I won't bring it into my heart. I'll keep at arm's length with regard to it. Jesus would basically say, those who hear these sayings of mine and disobey, he says, are like foolish people. The actual Greek word that's used there, foolish, is morose, right? You can imagine what the English word for that is. But then Jesus goes on to say, those who hear the sayings of mine and do them, uh, the word for obey or do them is actually the Greek word poio. We get the English word poem from, which is sort of this sort of root meaning, this idea of taking words that may seem disjointed, And regardless of how we may see the structure of them putting together or some sort of order in them, but yet we bring them together. So a poet is a master weaver of words. I'm not a poet. I'm very gifted at misspelling words. But some people are actually gifted at taking words and using them in a way that would actually bring good sense. And so I think the idea behind poio is to take words that come from Jesus and bring them or incorporate them into your life that make sense, that bring about sense. Jesus is saying, those who hear my sayings of mine and do them, will be like a wise man. Those who hear these sayings of mine and don't do them will be like a morose, a foolish person. And then he goes on to say, even further, the one who's fool, who's foolish, he builds his house upon a foundation of sand. Sand. All right? Sand, FYI, is not a good foundation to build really anything on. All right? Um, he says, those who are wise, who hear these things of mine and do them, would be like those who build their house upon a solid foundation of rock. They build into the bedrock. And so then he goes on to say, let me say two things real quick about this, the idea of house I think is being conveyed here. One, I think the concept of rock and house that's taking place here, later on in Matthew and other accounts, uh, what happens is Jesus is going to take his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's at this particular place that Jesus asks his disciples, says, who do you guys say that I am? You know, who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter, one of his disciples, says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, good job. Um, upon that rock, upon that rock, that confession, I'm going to build my church. I will build my church upon the confession that I am the Messiah. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, and then there's one other sort of uh, maybe subtle jab that maybe Jesus is inferring here, about 100 miles away, because they were in the Sea of Galilee region at this time when Jesus was teaching this, but 100 miles away, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, King Herod, one of the greatest kings, had started a massive building project on the temple. Massive building project that was actually still going during that time. So in some ways, you can sort of subtly hear the swinging of the hammers, and the name of the temple, or the temple was oftentimes referred to as the house. So I think what Jesus is also sort of inferring here is kind of a double type of a concept saying, one, I'm doing a new thing. And by the way, the old thing, the house of Herod, that Herod's building, that's being built according to this old system, this old wine, in old wineskins, according to faulty information, it will fall. 
it will fall. It's not being built upon rock. It's actually being built upon sand. And I think what Jesus is trying to convey here is that those who hear the sayings of mine, Jesus, and do them, their life will be sustained. They will withstand trials. They will be fortified through them. This does not mean that your life will be perfect. Right? Don't buy the lie that says, if you trust Jesus, everything will be better. Because the reality is, some things may be very difficult. You may end up still getting cancer. Your wife still may end up dying. Your children may still end up having difficult things going through. You may still end up getting fired. Horrible things may end up happening to you just as they happen to the rest of humanity. We're not exempt. But the reality is, is that in the midst of suffering, our houses, our lives are built upon a rock-solid confession that Jesus, who suffered and was victorious, Jesus, who died and overcame, is the Jesus that we serve. He's the foundation we build our lives on. So this is not a promise for somehow having an ease of life here in this world, but it is a promise that you will overcome just like Jesus himself, the great king, overcame. That's really good news. Because the flip side of all this that I've been trying to say all along, that the Bible talks about from the very beginning, is that the natural propensity of our heart is to worship false gods, to establish and direct false idols, things that we put our hope in, things that we trust in. All of us do this. I asked this question the past few weeks. The things that you find yourself running to, first and foremost in your life, above and beyond all other things, those are the idols that you run to. When you're happy and you're full of joy, what's the first thing that you think of, the first thing that you run to? See, Christians, when they're happy, they say, thank you, Jesus. Idolaters, first thing they do, they run to whatever it is that they worship. When you find yourself in great trouble, great difficulty, what's the first thing you run to? Those are oftentimes pretty good indicators of the idols that we worship. And here's why Jesus basically says it's deadly to worship these false gods. Because they cannot sustain you. You understand that? you got to catch this. Yes, it's an offense to God. Yes, God hates the idolatry. But I think there's something even more so that God has in his heart because he is love that he's concerned about. He's concerned about the things that we place the weight of our lives upon. Because some of us who trust in Jesus will be sustained. Others of us who trust in other things will fall as our idols crumble. Because they cannot sustain us. And God in his great love looks at humanity and says, I don't want you to crumble. I don't want you to be destroyed. I don't want you to be, be forsaken when I'm truth. And I don't lie. And I sustain. I can handle the weight of your hardships. I can handle the weightiness of your difficulties. I can handle the weight of your sin and of your shame and of your defilement and of your troubles in life. I can handle it. That's what Jesus is trying to say. So his whole point is hear the sayings and do them. Because left to ourselves, we just go our own path looking for anything that we can find in the moment that's at wholesale value and we trust it with all of our heart. And it always ends up breaking and fracturing and destroying us. 
The last thing I want to finish with is this. As he finishes with his little statement, and we're almost done here. Verse 28, he says, When Jesus had finished his sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. I already mentioned the way the scribes and Pharisees taught, Jesus taught differently. But I think the emphasis that Matthew wants us to catch here is this notion of the authority of Jesus. I think it's definitely something that Matthew wants us to catch because he uses the word authority a lot in his writings. Here's a couple examples of it. Turn forward real quick to Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Matthew 9, verse 6. He says this, but you, but you know, uh, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus, in his little story, there's a guy who's uh, paralytic, he's crippled, and Jesus basically says, should I heal the guy? Forgive his sins. People are freaking out. They're like, what? You can't forgive sins? Jesus is like, I'll show you I can. But it's easier for me, you know, to just say, I'll forgive the guy's sins. Or it's easier for you because, you, you know, you, you can be fooled by that. I can say I forgive your sins. The guy's still walking around or you're still not being able to walk around. But Jesus is basically saying, I want you to understand, I have authority to forgive sins. And here's what I'm going to do to prove my authority to forgive sins. I'm going to heal the guy. So he heals the guy. And basically, it's an establishing fact of saying, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Here's another example. It goes on from there in verse 8. It says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So these guys looked at Jesus, and they thought, Jesus has authority. Jump forward real quick, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, one of the last few uh, chapters in this book says this, and Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Basically his point is this, is that as far as your eye can see, out in the heavens, and as deep as your feet can go, the earth. Some other statements will say, uh, all authority even under the earth, right? The idea is that from the lowest depths all the way to the highest heights, all the way out to the farthest star, farthest, you know, blink of light that you can imagine, that's the extensiveness of the authority of Jesus. So the point that I think Matthew's trying to convey as we are sort of ascending his train of thought throughout the book of Matthew, he wants us to understand that Jesus is better than Moses, that Jesus is establishing basically a new, better way to live based upon his proper understanding of the Torah, and that Jesus ultimately, finally, is the authority. So let me break it down to you for, for you like this. At the end of the day, some of you are either in one or two camps. This is why Jesus summarizes the Sermon on the Mount by basically saying there's two paths, two types of trees, two types of confessions, two types of foundations. Because the reality is, is there are two types of people at the very heart and the core and the center of it all are either those people that acknowledge and accept and submit to the authority of Jesus and there are those who do not accept, acknowledge, or submit to the authority of Jesus. Now I know authority and submission to authority is very popular in our day. We love it. All right? I mean, our nation, okay? We are a nation of rebellious people. If you don't believe me, just ask the English. All right? We were founded on rebellion. All right? Now, my point is that sometimes there are good reasons to rebel. But my point that I would want to make to you is probably 99.9% of all of you who do rebel, who live as active rebelling, rebelling agents, do not have a good reason. 
You only rebel simply because you are, by nature, rebels, just like your dad, Adam. And just like your mom, Eve. All right? We, by nature, are rebellious. We fight against it. I'll give you an example. If you are an employee, you have already dealt with the issue of knowing that you can do the job better than your employer. If you are somebody who comes to church, you've sat there and you said, I can do church better than Brian. He sucks. All right? I can do a better job than the worship leader. I'm a better musician. I can lead a Bible study better than he can. If you're somebody that is in politics, the whole, I mean, if you ever want to sort of lower your IQ, listen to political talk radio, all right? That will help you. But the reality at the end of the day is it is a bunch of people who are basically convinced they can do better than somebody else who's over them. My point is this. We are rebellious by nature. We will fight. We will resist. We will hate any form of authority or authority figure. And it is because of this, we by nature stand at arm's length from God. And by standing at arm's length from God, we think that we're living in life, but in reality, we're dead. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, that path, that life, that mentality, that thought process will lead you to death. The path to life is trusting me. The path to life is following me. The path to life is submitting to my authority, is loving me, is serving me, is confessing me, is having relationship with me. Because Jesus' whole point is I am the mediator. I am the one who will bring you to the Father. I will mediate between you, sinful person, sinful humanity who has offended God and holy God. And I will do it in a way that will bring about fellowship. Let me finish with this little last section. I'm going to have the worship team come out. I want you to listen to this. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 says this. It's up on the screen. Paul says this. Don't live like the Gentiles do in the fertility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. So right there, Paul's basically saying the reality is is that if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, don't live like the rest of the world because what's happening is that the rest of the world, the rest of humanity, thinks they have life, but they really don't. They're alienated from God. They're separated from God because of ignorance, meaning they don't understand God properly, and secondly, because their heart is stiff. Their heart is hard. Their heart says, I don't want God. Their heart resists the authority of Jesus. Paul's whole point is don't live like that. Don't be like that. Verse 19, that they became callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way that you have learned Christ. His point in finishing is this. He wants us to come to have a life that's in Christ. You guys, at the end of the day, that's what I, as your pastor, want for you. I want you to know Christ. I want you to have life that comes from God. I don't want you trusting in idols that will crumble underneath your feet. I don't want you to trust in false personas or false perspectives of God or speculations that have basically been tainted because those are not life-giving. They're not life-establishing. They're not life-sustaining. Only God, as revealed through his mediator, Jesus, gives life today We get to celebrate Jesus. We get to celebrate this life. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to respond by worshiping Jesus, 
thanking him for what he's done, being our mediator, that he's brought us back, created the way for us to God, thus to life. So we're going to celebrate and respond by singing. We get to sing loud, right? You guys are second service. It is okay, FYI, to get really Pentecostal because Jesus is really good and to be excited. It is absolutely okay to clap and even clap on beat. It's okay. It's totally okay. I know it's probably near impossible, but it's okay to do that, to at least make that a goal, all right? Um, We're going to celebrate by giving our tithes and our offerings and respond to God. If you're one of our guests here, uh, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you want to give, give joyfully because you love Jesus. We're going to respond also by taking uh, communion. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, my encouragement to you is don't partake of the communion. There's a lot of things that we can do together here as a big group, but there are some things that we do together here as a family, a family that is united under the headship of Jesus our Lord. So if you don't know Jesus, my encouragement to you would be to give him your sin and trust him with all your heart. And then, the Bible says that he will make you, create you, bring you into his family. Join and partake of communion with us, and we'd be happy to have you join with us. We're going to worship, let's sing to God, let's give joyfully, let's partake of communion. I'm going to pray, let's do this. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you ultimately for the cross. It's all for the glory of God, because you love us. So God, right now we want to give back to you our worship. We want to respond to you in the appropriate ways. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us, what you endured for us. That's through your coming here to our earth, taking upon our form, suffering, dying, rising again, and ascending again back to the right hand of the Father. Because of that, that we can have a pathway to the Father and have life, truly live. So we trust you right now. We worship you. I pray for anybody else here that maybe doesn't know you, that you would cause them to give you their sin, to confess you, Jesus, as their Lord in their life. 